If you open your Bibles to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to begin reading in verse 4. And I need to make a little disclaimer about what I, how I feel about most of Paul's letters. I think that they are wordy and they go on and on and he tries to say a whole lot in a few verses and I find it very difficult to preach from the Apostle Paul. And I don't know if Bob Smith is in here because he just stopped listening to me. Pauline Scholar at, uh, at Point Loma. So we have a big chunk of scripture to read today. I'm going to read it quickly and then we'll go back and we'll talk about it. All right? So just hang with me. Here we go. Second Corinthians chapter four, chapter three, beginning in verse four. Such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. You should see that word um, competence as our righteousness. That's really how we should translate that in Greek. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter or the law, we could say, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Verse seven. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory or temporary though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. You see? And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Verse 12, in case you got lost in all those glories. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled face contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. I have three stories for you today. The first one you'll find in Exodus chapter 34. It's the second time Moses ascended to the top of Mount Sinai to meet with God, and it ended much better than the first time he went up. The first time he returned after 40 days of blissful communion with the Lord, and and only to see God's people in the throes of a wild golden calf type of party. And I think it was the shock of seeing how easily God's people could be misled that caused him to drop those stone tablets and they crumbled to become once again part of the dust of the earth. And so after a rather harsh punishment, Moses ascended again. And this time when he came off the mountain, the people couldn't even fix their gaze, is how we could read that, upon him because of the beams of light coming from his face. The presence of God changed the face of Moses so much that when he was with the people, he covered God's fading glory with a veil. But when he went back into the tent of meeting, when he went back into the sanctuary with the Lord, he sat uncovered by the veil, face to face with the Lord God Almighty. This law that Moses brought down off the mountain became the standard of righteous living for the Israelites. This law became the path to holiness, to righteousness, to being good enough for God to love. And very quickly, 
The people of God turned those Ten Commandments into hundreds of thou shalt and thou shalt not in an attempt to legislate enough details of daily living to maintain a right relationship with God. Listen again. In the time of Moses, the people of God turned those Ten Commandments into hundreds of do's and don'ts in an attempt to maintain a right relationship with God in a human effort to be good enough for God. In 1176 A.D. in Strasbourg, France, Roman Catholics began building what would become the tallest building in the world, at least for a few years. As far back as the 4th century, Christians had been building uh, churches, uh, small sanctuaries on this particular site, only to have war or fire destroy destroy the building. But under the direction of Bishop Heinrich von Hassenberg, work began on what we now call the Strasbourg Cathedral. As the only cathedral constructed entirely in the Middle Ages, it sits in, it sat, it still sits, man, I don't know if it still sits, it sat, it was constructed in the city center. At the crossroads, where all the people from every highway and every byway of life, from the countryside to the city center, could find it, could get to it, could see it, and ultimately find eternal life through its doors. On the south entry portal, that just means one of the south doors, you'll find the statues of two women, each of them about six feet five inches, which I think might be about this tall. So... All statues of women. One is named Ecclesia, which means church. The other is named Synagoga, synagogue. They are so meaningful and they are so beautiful that these two ladies in 1885, a sculptor began replicating them in miniature form. And until 1990, they were the only statues that were replicated out of this particular cathedral. Now they do a whole bunch of them. But from 1885 to 1990, the only ones that were replicated were Ecclesia and Synagoga. Both figures are young and attractive. A crown adorns the head of Ecclesia. She holds a chalice in one hand and a staff topped with a cross in the other. Her unveiled forward gaze speaks of her confidence in Christ and the promise of life that is to come. Synagoga, on the other hand, is blindfolded and downcast. She holds the tablets of stone, the law of Moses, in one hand, turned upside down. In her other hand, she carries a spear, now broken. You have to look really closely to see it. But it starts here. It goes along the back of her arm, and it actually breaks so that the tip of that spear is just inches from her head. And you, I think that we're supposed to hearken back. We're supposed to think about, we're supposed to be reminded about the spear that pierced the side of Christ when we look at the spear on synagogue. Powerful symbolism. Powerful that they are both beautiful and they are both attractive. That one stands upright, surrounded by the cross and the cup, 
looking confidently ahead with hope of what is to come, and the other blindly looking downward, almost crumbling beneath the weight of the stone law she carries in her hand. Recently, Matthew and I went with Michelle and Michaela to see the King Tut exhibit. If you haven't been, it's absolutely fascinating. When you first walk in, you begin to hear the story of Howard Carter. I don't know if he became a Sir Howard Carter, but Howard Carter um, and uh, and all that he went through to orchestrate this. And as I'm listening, I mean, I, I'm totally captivated by the story. And I'm like, I wonder if he's going to find it. I wonder if he's, well, of course he's going to find it because you're standing in the exhibit, right? So, um, but you, at one point, um, a particular window opens up and you are seeing what, what, what Howard Carter would have seen the very first time he opened up that pyramid. I mean, you, you're seeing it all right there, um, the, the tomb of King Tut. And then you go into another area, and I'm not going to get all this right, Michelle, so forgive me, but um, you begin, to, you, you feel like you are actually in, inside these three walls of the tomb of King Tut that actually you get to the very inner one, and that's where the mummy was. But, I mean, you feel like you are standing, they have, I mean, these walls, I mean, I'm like, this is amazing. I am standing in the tomb of King Tut. And then you go into the last room, and it is filled with toys and jewelry and tools that King Tut might need in his afterlife. And then I began to see this word that really got me. I began to see this word. It was replica, replica, replica. And I, and I, and I, I, I mean, I went all around and I'm like, you are kidding me. None of this is real. This is not really the treasures of King Tut. And, and I'm still a little ticked off about that. I mean, they were, when, can, if you haven't been, the attention to detail on this stuff, I mean, somebody went to great lengths to make sure that the jewelry looked just like the real jewelry. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not real. It's fake. And I felt gypped and cheated. What do these stories have to do with 2 Corinthians? I'm so glad you asked. For the people of Moses, the law was good, but it was entirely dependent on an individual's ability to keep it. There was no provision in the law for help or assistance from the Lord. Living in the law is a human attempt to be righteous, holy, and good enough for God to love. Paul says in verse 4 and 5 of our, of our passage that our confidence, our rightness, does not come through any efforts of our own. But, quote, through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything in ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Are you relying on your own ability to be good enough for God or on the righteousness of Jesus Christ? And while sitting unveiled face to face before the Lord transformed Moses, that transformation was temporary and solitary. The spirit of the Lord was evident in Moses just for a time, kind of like a really good tan eventually fades away. 
But then it was gone and it had no effect. Listen to this. It had no effect on the people around him because they sat veiled before the Lord. Paul says in verse 18 that we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, that means sit in the presence of the Lord, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, every time Moses had to go back into the tent of meeting to be transformed, he was starting at ground zero all over again. Do you get that? Not anymore. We sit unveiled before the Lord, continuously in his presence. The message says it it this way. And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old constricting legislation is recognized as obsolete. We're free of it. All of us. All of us. Nothing between us and God. Our face is shining with the brightness of his face, and so we are transfigured much like the Messiah. Our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. Does your life reflect constant transformation or is it veiled by constant restarts? Is your life, does your life reflect The constant transformation? Or are you constantly finding yourself at ground zero? Trying to start all over again. When one is blinded to the grace of God in Christ Jesus, the weight of trying to be good enough bends the entire body towards the grave. When I try to live in my own righteousness, when I try to be good enough for God to love, my very own life becomes a drudgery to the point of despair, eventually death, spiritual death and eternal death. And I think that if we can bring synagogue to life, I think maybe she started out with her hand raised high with the law for all to see, excited to share the rules and regulations for holy God-approved living. But as she comes down off the mountain and her feet touch the soil of everyday life filled with carpools and board meetings and empty bank accounts and angry neighbors, Blindfolded to the grace of Jesus Christ, I think that she trips on jealousy and perfectionism, temptation, insecurity, injustice, hypocrisy, and the grip on the law that she once held so tightly begins to fall back to the earth, hundreds of little pieces of dust again. Again, Paul speaks to synagogue and to those of us who like to live by our own efforts. He says, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the veil is removed, where the grace of God is at work rather than the efforts of man Freedom is found. Freedom to be all that God created us to be. 
When the veil is removed, when we stand with the cross in one hand and the cup of Christ poured into our lives on the other, we stand tall and upright with our gaze fixed on what is to come. Because no matter what is coming, it's coming in Christ. There is hope for tomorrow. Be sure of this. If we could bring Ecclesia back to life, her feet would also touch the soil of the broken and the wounded. She would still face the trials of ordinary life. That's really important to hear today, church. She would still sit in meetings with people that bother her. She would still be tempted to be the perfect mom or the rising star of the company or the most popular eighth grader on campus. Those temptations would still be there. She's still walking in ordinary life with us. She's still touching the same soil that synagogue would have been touching. Yeah? Life is life. She probably even stumbles sometimes. But she does not fall. As Paul says over in 2 Corinthians 4, she knows that her treasure is not in jars of clay or stone tablets, but in the all-surpassing power that is from God and not from us. Ecclesia is hard-pressed on every side, but she is not crushed, perplexed, or in despair. She is persecuted, but she is not abandoned. She is struck down, but she is not destroyed. Ecclesia always carries around in her body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in her body. Someone should say amen. Where is your gaze this morning, church? Where is your gaze? Mine, I've been tripping a little lately. And finally, the King Tut exhibit. I think we can fake our faith in Jesus. I think we can manufacture the image of cookie-cutter religion, living, the lo- living by the law, attempting to own our own righteousness. And I think we can do so with meticulous attention to detail. I think we can make ourselves look so good that people will think we are the real thing. We might even trick ourselves into thinking we're the real thing. And then we turn the corner. And the glory fades. And we're not really looking to Jesus, but to ourselves. And pretty soon, we begin to see those empty, hollow words stamped on our lives. Replica, replica, replica. That's a hard and painful reality to admit. But there is freedom in allowing the law to crumble to the earth. Because when we finally die to ourselves, The Lord resurrects. When we finally breathe our last breath, the Spirit brings new life, filling our lungs with His righteousness, His grace, 
his transforming power, and the love of Jesus Christ. When my bones are dry and brittle and becoming the dust of the earth, the Spirit brings life back into those dry bones, transforming what was once death into life. As Paul said 2,000 years ago, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, I can't pretend to know which one of those stories you feel like you might relate to most. But it is my firm belief that there is something for every one of us today. So here's those questions one more time. Are you relying on your own ability to be good enough for God or on the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Do you think you have to be good enough on your own for God to love you? Would you hear the invitation today to come experience the grace of Jesus Christ? Does your life reflect reflect constant transformation or is it veiled by constant restarts? Come sit unveiled before the Lord today. Let that constant reforming begin. Where is your gaze this morning? Forward? Confident? Christ in you? Are you downcast? Are you tripping over the dust of the earth? Or the law? Please ask Jesus. To help you lift your gaze today. Please ask him to transform your life day after day after day of the hope that is to come. You are surrounded by the cross of Jesus and the cup of life. Raise your head. Raise your head, church. Christ in you. And finally, and maybe most painfully, are you faking your faith? Are you ready to trade in the life that kills for the life that lives? About a year and a half ago, um, Dave and I were home alone. It was at Christmas time, and we were um, we were decorating for Christmas. Our kids were up at church for something, and we had to run up to Petco to get some food for our dog. And why? And and when we, you know, what Petco does on Saturday morning, they have all their rescue dogs out there. Well, we are normally not tempted, but we um, we we got out there, and um, and there was this really 
adorable, ugly black dog that we were very drawn to. David and I, not our children. And we looked at her for a little while and found out what kind of dog she was. And we were, we were like, wow, maybe we should get her. No, we're not getting a dog. We are going home. So we spent a couple hours at home decorating. And um, it was almost lunchtime. And we're like, you know, let's just go see if she's still there. So we walked up. We, we drove up. And she was still there. Um, and this lady came over and, and picked her up. She kind of went around the corner. And she was holding her. And, and Dave did this little stalking thing. He just kind of, if you know David, you know that that look. So I asked, how much does it cost to adopt a rescue dog? It should be like $40. Nobody wants them. It's $200. Okay, David, get in the car. We're not buying this dog. It's Christmas time. Besides, we already have a dog at home. You know, we don't need another dog. So the kids got home and it's like 3.30. We finished decorating. We're sitting in the living room. They closed up shop at four and we said, hey guys, guess what we almost did today? We almost got a dog. What? You almost got a dog? Yeah, but you know what? It's $200. We're not getting this dog. Matthew and Corey ran up to their room. They gathered all, first time they've ever worked towards anything together in their lives. And, and they pooled all their money together and they came up with $60. They're going to give us all of our money, all of their money. And we're like, no. Well, you know what? Papa Cook always sends us money for Christmas. So instead of giving you that money, um, then we'll use that money towards that dog. We'll go back up there, but that is the only dog that we're going to be talked into. You, we, if, if that one's not there, we're not getting that dog. Got it? Okay. Guess what? She was still there. It was meant to be. Stella Joy came home. She became part of our house. Um, first time I took her to the vet, Stella has one ear that's up and one ear that da- that's down, and, and, and she is a hideously ugly dog. Even my vet said, I said, isn't she hideous? And she said, yeah, you know, I think that you could um, use her for those abused dog um, commercials. And, I mean, a year and a half later, she still is hideously ugly. But let me tell you what you can do with Stella. We, we, have, we had sent a daughter off to college and our lives were a little empty. So you can sit there with Stella. She, a year and a half later, you can still do this. You can turn her over on her back and you can hold her in your arms like this. And you can talk to her just like a little baby. And you can swing her back and forth. I don't and do you that. can hold her in your arms. And you can just talk to her, and she just looks at you. I mean, it's amazing. In the morning when we're downstairs getting breakfast, she wants to sit right up here, right? I can hold her just like my kids used to do, as high up as they could go so they could see all the world around them. I mean, she's really good therapy. At the end of the day, you can lay on the couch, and she just lays right here just like a little baby. Beautiful. Absolutely disgusting, but it's beautiful. And then about two weeks ago, the Cook family went to visit the new Duffy baby. And I got to hold Kira. And Kira sat right here and just nuzzled her little face, her little body close. And she fussed for just a little bit, and then she fell asleep. And there is nothing like the real thing. Do you understand, church? There's nothing like the real thing. And we can get so caught up in living in our own righteousness that we have forgotten what it feels like 
to hold the cross of Jesus before us and his life with it. I am positive that there are some of us here today that have lost grace. Maybe never found grace. I am confident that there's some ecclesias here whose head has begun to point downward by the weight of the world. Would you come let Jesus lift your gaze forward once again? I am positive there are some of us who have been faking our In the moments we have ahead, would you come trade it in? Teenagers. Would you come trade in the fake for the real? Jesus, would you speak to us in these moments? To speak to the tender places of our heart that might be a little callous. Would you take the veil off and just let us sit in your holy of holies, unveiled before you, where you love us, where you lavish your gifts upon us, where we are not naked and afraid and ashamed, but we are whole and we are fresh and we are new and we are alive. Speak to us, Jesus. Church, in these moments, we're going to sing a little bit. We're going to worship. We're not done. You might want to take the hand of someone next to you. You might want to kneel at your seat. You might want to kneel at an altar. You might want to raise your hand. Let Jesus speak to you today. Let Jesus speak to you.